welcome one and all back to the Four Idle Hands podcast. It's the edge of 17, as Stevie oh. Nicks said. Jerry. Oh, Mike, you beat me to it. That was my line. I was, was going, it? I was, I was like an all day about 17, what you can get for 17, because we haven't got to 19 yet, which is another open goal coming. But um, no, edge, edge of 17, it is. It is indeed. Yeah, and, and that's kind of appropriate, really, because our um, uh, star guest today is uh, a man who's just put an edge artificial intelligence project into space, into orbit. Yes, it's Mr. Giuseppe Mandaloro, who is the um, European Space Agency Vega rocket launch maestro, I guess. I don't quite yeah, sure. That's what exactly uh, what he yeah. is. Yeah. So, uh, uh, so, so we've got a great interview with uh, Giuseppe. And uh, along with that, we've got heaps of other good stuff. We're going to talk the usual Trump, Brexit, lockdown. You name it. And we've got other wee technology bits. We've got the um, mini Xbox S, which has just been announced. Yes, um, which I, I've got some information on that further, which is quite interesting. Yeah, the um, big news of the week is, is uh, Aberdeen-based, isn't it? Well, this, this is, we're talking about Taco, Taco Bell hits Aberdeen. Yes. Yeah. yes. So we have uh, Taco Bell hitting Aberdeen. We also have some other Edinburgh restaurant news hot from it. Um, we have some um, space-themed songs because obviously we're boldly going this week. Uh, Alan Partridge and uh, it's not. We're not going to review the Idols album yet, but we're going no, to. No, we're going to review a review of it. Yes, uh, it was so right. popular last week. We've got to come back to it. <laughs> yes, indeed, absolutely. So, 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 Mr. Trump. So, obviously, this guy Christian Tybringheda, I think is the pronunciation. Well done, Terry. Well, I did double check with some colleagues, and he's put he's nominated Trump for the. For the Nobel Peace Prize, yeah, which is bizarre. But apparently, the nomination doesn't mean very much. I think I think anybody can be pretty much nominated um, for for anything. In fact, I might nominate you. <laughs> I think I think you have to be a member of the of the. You know, I can imagine the Nobel Committee is some sort of very aloof sort of list of people, obviously sitting in Oslo. But um, I did. I was speaking to a couple of Norwegian guys, and they said that this guy Christian is obviously. Look, he's a very far, he's far right, obviously. Um, he's obviously a bit of a Trump supporter and, um, you know, thinks that he obviously wants to get an invite to the White House at some point. So, but, uh, um, but yeah, I saw, obviously, this has to do with Israel and the United Arab Emirates peace deal. And I saw he, he did another peace deal the other day. Yes, I can't remember what that was, but I mean, he's going to love this, isn't he? Uh, he he certainly is. I mean, this is all about uh, electioneering for him, I guess. But an amazing bit of trolling by the Norwegians of the Swedes. I mean, you know, the, <laughs> The Swedes are likely to take that a bit personally. I think you know why. Why are they nominating this guy? Well, exactly. I mean, but I mean, the Norwegians and Swedes don't, don't get on very well. It's a bit like Scotland and England, I think, as well as like the Scandinavian countries. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just going to give him more ammunition for for his own pile of crap that he's kind of pushing out every day, sort of thing. But because uh, it actually isn't that long till the elections now. I mean, it's, it's November, isn't it? I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, it's, it's a matter of months. And he, he's behind, and he's already been nailing up post boxes and and all sorts of setting fire to them and all sorts. So you can't put your postal folks <laughs> into it. So I think, I think... Uh, speaking speaking of uh, setting fire to things, um, the Tories have been at it again with uh, the um, uh, Brexit agreement uh, or non-agreement, as it now appears to be. Yes, they seem to be going against the sort of the the, the, the sort of the breach of the law or the. They've already agreed to. They're going to, as far as put it, disapply. I thought they call it dis- disapply um, some clauses, which then, of course, may affect the relationship between uh, Britain and Northern Ireland. Yeah, 
Uh, and, and I mean, it, it, this has been a festering sore since uh, really the day that uh, uh, Leave won won the vote. So they've had you know over four years to get this thing, uh, get their heads around it, and um, it, it just co- keeps coming back to to bite them, doesn't it? it, it it's uh, hard to see a solution. Well, it is, and I don't see. I saw obviously Michel Barnier and all these guys were across this week, and they're all going around London, and there was not much social distancing from the from the journalists. I noticed that these people were nipping in and out of cars, and 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 go with this very fancy uh, Scottish checked tartan face mask on. Um, but um, yeah, they're basically trying to just throw away the agreement they made about a year ago and, and go for something completely different. And it's a fairly bit of brinkmanship from the government. They're trying to guess, push the European Union into something else. Um, and it, it, might, it might work. I mean, I don't, yeah, I have no idea where they're going to head with this one. But well, I, I think you're right. I think it probably is a bit of brinkmanship about it. But uh, uh, Northern Ireland political parties have been pretty quiet about it, haven't they? This week, I mean, the DUP have, have not said um, re- really a huge amount on something which is impacting them because I suppose it works in their favour. I probably would. I haven't seen much. Funny, I was looking just I listened to the Northern Ireland sort of news programs yesterday, and um, there wasn't very much at all. They were more kind of COVID driven, I think, and I think that's maybe the hope they'll be more involved with that. Because I mean, I think Northern Ireland's got you know per capita quite a high count now at the minute, actually. So yeah, um, in places like Belfast, I think they're kind of just more focusing on that than than this for now, actually. So, yeah, but, um, but, but yeah, but, but you do wonder, you know, where is the voice of? Uh, business and all this because um, you know the uh, value of the EU market to UK exporters is about 300 billion a year and they're effectively you know jeopardizing that trade for 8 billion worth uh, of trade between Northern Ireland and uh, uh, Great Britain uh, over over, uh, paperwork uh, some of which is already um, taking place you know the agricultural checks are, are, are there already I believe so. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it is hard to uh, see a solution to it, and you know it affects lots of different people. I mean, your your brother he he does work on both sides of the border, Terry. So they, they, they all do the nightmare all, for him. They're all they all my nephews. They all do sort of farming businesses, which tend to be pan pan Is that the word for it? Um, but they sort of you know across the border, their companies will work in the north and the south equally the same sort of thing. But of course, with the same sort of smokescreen, the government's obviously done a a, a deal with Japan now. Um, for, for a trade deal, which they, they were pumping through all the news outlets this week. But in fact, Britain's trade with Japan is very small. Yeah. Uh, I think probably I think probably Scotland does more deals with Japan on selling on whiskey than anything else, I would imagine. So, uh, indeed. Um, indeed. But, uh, uh, and uh, uh, another sort of contentious area and, you know, uh, fragmentation of advice is um, lockdown between Scotland and uh, the rest of the UK at the moment. Well, I was confused by this because obviously it's called the Rule of Six, right? Um, so I was thinking back, I suddenly thought the Rule of Six sounds very much like a Sherlock Holmes episode. <laughs> uh, and, and actually, there is two episodes that, that come up in mind. One is called The Sign of Three, which is interesting enough. And there was an episode in the last series of Sherlock on the BBC called The Six Thatchers, which could be some sort of parallel Brexit sort of lockdown thing going on. But uh, yeah, they've, they've certainly got to clarify it now. So, so. And so today, or t- from tomorrow, t- Monday the fourteenth of September, yeah. you can't you can't meet. Oh, you know, I'm not sure. You can't meet with more than six. Yeah, people it's in your it's, house. A, it's a total of six people, isn't it? Yeah. From from two families. Yeah. But in Scotland, you don't count kids. Yeah. Under twelve, and in England, everywhere else, I think in Wales, you have to count the children. So, uh, and then of course, unless you're in 
Glasgow where you can't meet anybody inside. And then obviously there's lockdowns in Birmingham, Bolton, etc. Care Philly and Wales. So yeah, I, I guess we're trying to simplify it, but I think it's made it more complicated now. Yeah, it's kind of mixed messages uh, on, on everything really. And it doesn't really help when you get guys like... Uh, Ian Brown, erstwhile of the Stone Roses, uh, tweeting out, no lockdown, no tests, no tracks, no masks, no vax. I mean, well, I wonder what he was thinking about when he did that. I think he was just having a few beers one night and thought, well, we'll just go for this sort of thing. But uh, very, very surprising. And obviously you saw John Squire obviously um, came back at him straight away um, to have to wear a mask, stay safe, look after yourself, et cetera, et cetera. So... Um, but I mean, it doesn't, it's not very helpful. Is it's it? not. I mean, particularly when Ian Brown's tweet gets twenty thousand likes and John Squires only gets about seven thousand. So I don't know what that <laughs> says, really. <laughs> well, it's probably what you'd expect, so from for Ian Brown sort of thing. But I mean, now we have, you know, in Scotland we have the Protect Scotland app, which I've downloaded, and I've been every time my phone dings, I'm panicking. It's the app telling me something I've met somewhere. Um, it seems quite easy to run. I mean, you just log into it, and that's it. But it's not going to be possibly compatible with the UK one or the English England one. I've heard. Yeah, and the the, not the, the Daily Telegraph have been busy uh, trawling uh, Ireland and Scotland simultaneously with their headline saying studies in Ireland where a near identical app is already in use found that Bluetooth is not reliable at measuring two meter distance. Now I kind of think this is missing the point a wee bit, isn't it? I mean, if it's not. Um, measuring two meters accurately, but it's measuring, uh, you know, two and a half or three, surely you're better off erring on the side of caution with this. Uh, and uh, if it means that people who are likely uh, to have been exposed can get tested sooner and not pass it on to other people, surely that's a good thing. You, you would have thought so. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I funny enough, this morning I went into uh, Aberdeen to Bonacord Baths. They had an open day today and the old um, Art Deco baths and stuff. And I, I was in the queue and then we went through the building to have a quick look. And I was thinking that, you know, we were kind of, we were probably about three metres away from most people. They weren't that close because people were straggling out. And I thought, surely it would still, you know, ping up within sort of four or five metres, you would imagine. That's at least. Maybe, I mean, I don't know, because I don't think the virus is that fussy about the two metres, is it really? It can go a bit, a bit further than it wants to. So yeah. Sure. Um, but, but they reckon there's only 700,000 people have downloaded it. I mean, I think that's pretty good, Scotland. bearing in mind, uh, yeah. you know, it wasn't getting a massive push. Uh, I, I think that shows that people are, are, are serious about um, trying to do their bit here. Well, I hope so. But interestingly enough, uh, one of the younger Charltons at, uh, on Friday said to me had, he hadn't even heard of it yet. And um, but then he opened up his app store on his phone, and sure enough, it was it was number one, it was the first thing he saw on the thing. But so he said, I haven't seen it anywhere. Uh, um, so you know, whether they haven't pushed it out to businesses or or more to the social media, or he's just he just missed it potentially. But um, in fact, two of the Charltons hadn't seen it. One had my daughter works in NHS, and she'd seen it, but. The two boys hadn't seen it at all, so they've not they've done it now. But um, and I guess over time people will pick it up. But like, but there's an issue though with older folk with older phones. I think because you can't download it. That's right. Yeah. And then I saw a thing this morning actually, which is not is related to this, but not directly. Whereas the BBC have stopped covering Nicola Sturgeon's daily briefings. Yeah. Um, because of a potential bias towards you know electioneering sort of thing. And then they, they countered with the fact that uh, older viewers, people who don't have phones to get social media, rely on her daily chat sort of thing. So, um, I wonder, I wonder who would have been encouraging uh, the BBC to um, uh, close uh, coverage of those uh, conferences down. 
You wonder, wouldn't you? Yeah, you would wonder. <laughs> anyway, um, further technology news, Terry. Um, the well, Xbox is back in slightly smaller well, format. It is. I'm actually sitting here looking at an Xbox at the minute. I'm a bit of a gamer from, from my, my past, and they're now bringing out what's called the Xbox. I mean, these things, I have no idea why I've lost. Mine's called Xbox One something or other. This one's the Xbox S, which is the smallest ever one, so they basically chuffed it all into a smaller box with, this is the interesting part, no disk drive. Now, yeah. So they've been to disk drive, um, so you have to download the games, and the ace in their, in their sleeve is the fact that they're going to offer a Netflix-style subscription service. Yeah. You can already do this. So basically, you pay them, I can't remember what it is, eight quid a month or something, and you can just download and delete and download whatever, as many things you want, which obviously is not good for the bricks and mortar shops that would sell you know, discs and so Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Uh, um, but uh, but I do think there's, I mean, there's, there's only so far you can um, push these kind of game console type things because they, they sell them on, you know... Uh, was it 8K, 4K resolution with all this stuff? And I'm pretty sure your brain can't function with that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm, you know I, I'm sitting here, if you look at Leo Messi in a, in, a, in a football game, he looks pretty decent. And the, the, the next reality would be him sitting beside you in a sofa. But I, I just don't th- I mean, I was, I was laughing with my with James about um, resolutions and stuff. He says, oh, damn, the resolution is so much better. I said, yeah, but you physically can't see that. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think. But it's an interesting scenario, and the hang, I think PlayStation are going to do the same thing with uh, a version with no disk drive, um, and just have you know, just digital downloads. Which I mean, I quite like that, but it's it's it does then limit you to you know you can't flog them on or or whatever. Uh, exactly. If you're bored with it, and then you've you've kind of uh, you, you have been paying for it. I mean, this thing costs two hundred forty nine quid, which doesn't sound like a huge amount. But then if you factor in that you're having to effectively rent the games. Uh, it doesn't yes. be long adding up, does it? No, well, you're talking about another. Well, you, you've got to pay to play them online, so that's another. I can't remember how much that is, and then you've got to pay eight quid or something a month to to join this. Um, have a pass to play as much as you want. So yeah, so it's fairly, it's quite quite clever. Um, going into a bit to my side, actually, I noticed I was in, in Pret-a-Manger yesterday in Aberdeen, and they're offering a coffee subscription scheme. So what you do is you pay, tw- well, the first month's free, but you basically pay 20 quid a month and you can have as many coffees as you want. You can have five coffees a day from Pret-a-Manger from any of their range, uh, five, five a day for every day, every day of the week sort of thing for a month. So you can be totally <laughs> wired for 20 quid a month. <laughs> well, I actually thought I'd do a free one for a month, but then they're clever because you can't, do it. You have to wait thirty minutes between coffees. Okay. So, so you can't order an order two at once. You have to wait. Go what? Like I say, there's two of you. Um, you have to go in once and then wait for thirty minutes to order another one. <laughs> <laughs> but if you're in London or somewhere where you're passing them every day, oh, sure, yeah, you could do it. <laughs> but I was kind of wondering if that's going to be. I mean, I guess. I, mean, I suppose Amazon do that with books, like the Audible stuff and everything. You just subscribe. You don't own anything. I mean, Spotify is a bit like that. I guess you pay and you get as much as you want. But I like, I like the physical physical thing so um and speaking of physical things i have a, a little guessing game for you go for it uh last on the 3rd of september it was super thursday in the book world right so in britain how many hardback books were released on that day oh i think it'll be stacks uh i'm gonna go for about a thousand oh well, okay no it was 600 mm. um but then they have mega thursday which is the 1st of october 
which is the the big day apparently for sales, and they reckon there'll be seven hundred books released in that one day, including the new Ian Rankin book, obviously, yeah, um, and stuff, and it's all for the kind of Christmas sort of season. But I thought that's that's an incredible amount of books. Yeah, I mean, they um, they uh, traditionally have uh, done a lot at the the start of September because it was generally tied in with the Edinburgh Book Festival, I think, and uh, yes. you know there was yeah. a lot of media uh, interest in, um, in in that, so the, you know it was sensible to tie the book launches in, I guess. Yeah, but I, I thought it was a phenomenal night actually. So, but uh, so quite interesting. Yeah, and then we have uh, we have a new restaurant chain opening in Aberdeen. As oh well. no, Terry! This uh, this takes me back decades altogether. Do you know what I thought? Taco Bell had bit the dust. It's so long since I've seen one, but they have opened a restaurant in Aberdeen. It is, and I walked past it yesterday, and I was. Uh, this was about lunchtime yesterday, and it was absolutely officially, distantly rammed yesterday. I would say be the word for it. So, um, but you, you had a, you saw somebody commenting on the quality of food, though. I think, well, or it was a, it was a vegetarian. I, I'm going to read it out just so we can remove the expletive, Terry. Uh, just went into the new Taco Bell and asked the server what was suitable for a vegan, and he asked his manager, who replied. They can have anything, just scrape the effing meat off it. Mm, tempting. <laughs> uh, well, 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 I I decided to go into TripAdvisor just to see if anybody had reviewed it yet, the Taco Bell Aberdeen. And funny enough, nobody had reviewed it yet <laughs> in Aberdeen. But it did suggest Taco Bell in Glasgow. So I went on there. And I'm, I mean, to be fair to Taco Bell, a lot of people liked it. They, it's, you know... Um, it was fine. A lot of people obviously didn't like it, and you know, Trump advisor tends to be fairly mixed. But the one headline that I liked was "junk, junk for drunks," <laughs> um, and I thought that's very appropriate. You know, you're coming out of a pub, it's, it's midnight, you're hungry, and you don't really care what it is. So, junk for drunks. Yeah, it kind of like it, it reminds me. Uh, you know, when I uh, many years ago lived in London, and uh, you know, if I needed something fast, and I was going down the the, the West End, maybe Leicester Square or something like that, there was a Taco Bell quite a big one uh, between Piccadilly and Leicester Square, and I would occasionally have gone into it. Now, that's like uh, 30 years ago, and I had no experience yeah. of, of Mexican food worth talking about. But even at that point, I knew it wasn't very good. No, uh, and but it's weird. that You're right. I remember that at London. There was one near uh, Earl's Court, and I remember going to that one a couple of times. And then, it, you're right, it disappeared. But why has it taken 30 years to come back? Which is, I mean, I guess maybe they've looked at the model and thought we'll come back again now. But yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, actually. maybe, but, uh, maybe yeah. it's got that kind of retro appeal. But it reminds me of something uh, a, a friend of mine said about um, American food in general. That you know they take foods of the world and they just pass them through the deflavorizer <laughs> to uh, uh, appear to the American palate. I, I did like that deflavorizer. That was that was quite good. So so on more restaurant news, right? So uh, I asked you earlier, I think, on the phone, but um, what is the number one rated restaurant in TripAdvisor in Edinburgh? You could think of what it is today. And I got it wrong. Uh, you got it wrong. Yeah. So this was, a, this was in, this, in the paper yesterday. So the number one rated restaurant in TripAdvisor is the Heart of Midlothian Skyline Restaurant. All right. At, at uh, the Heart of Midlothian Stadium. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> No, they had. I think they said there was ninety-eight reviews in TripAdvisor, of which ninety-seven were five stars. Um, and it looks, I looked at the pictures. It looks lovely, and I'm sure the food's fine. And I can't think where it is. If you, if you maybe you get maybe it's a hospitality, and you get a review of the pitch, but it says it's got reviews of Edinburgh over it. Um, but I'd like to bet that ninety-nine point nine percent of those people that went to that were hard to believe in the fans. Never. And uh, I <laughs> and gave it. 
the five stars with the excellent rating. But I mean, I'm sure it's good, but uh, I, I can't believe it's the, the best restaurant. I, I, so there we go. So, okay. I'm inclined to agree with you. Now, Terry, we've got quite a few uh, returns and reunions this week. Uh, we'll, we'll drift over one of them very quickly. It's the return of Leeds, Leeds, Leeds to the, the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, I, I was quite pleased to see Leeds back. I'm looking forward to Man United Leeds. That's always been a bit of a... Um, you know, sort of a good, uh, sort of well, not really local derby, but a sort of grudge match in the years and um, a rumble. Um, and they played yesterday against Liverpool, and from what I understand, it was a pretty good game. It was, it was a good um, game. And uh, what I kind of uh, enjoyed about it was uh, that it kind of exposed uh, Liverpool as being a bit overconfident. And the other thing I noticed about it was that the the Leeds players were really playing as a a proper unit, and uh, I, I think they will do well this year. The manager of Bielsa, when he was shaking hands um, uh, with Klopp at the end of it, he looked like he was attending a funeral. He was so downcast at having lost. I mean, that guy takes winning very, very seriously, which is good to see. You know, like. Yeah, he's a rather odd chap. And, and again, I read a story about this weekend when he came to Leeds first. Um, fans were a bit confused because they saw him. He's Italian, isn't he? Italian. Uh, Argentinian, I think, is he? Argentinian, Argentinian, yes, right, sorry, he is. And they saw him and his uh, like assistant manager walking from his flat in Leeds to the stadium, to the training ground, with a trundle wheel, you know, <laughs> that he used on the roads for measuring out. And then two days later, there was a blue line on the road painted between his flat and the stadium on the training ground. And people were, were confused what it was, and so they asked him about it. And apparently, he doesn't really understand. He didn't speak English very well. Uh, he didn't want to use a sat nav, and he wanted a line in the road he could just follow to cycle to work. Wow! So, so he painted his own line, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> because his his mind is very the way it works. I mean, I remember seeing a thing about him training, and his, he's he's all to do with numbers, and you know, he's very detailed and he did a lot of research and stuff. So apparently, he just couldn't he just couldn't follow the signs, so he just followed the blue line every day until it wore off, and then he painted the blue line again. So, uh, did, did, didn't he spy on other teams' training sessions by hiding in hedges? Uh, that was, yeah, he was Derby County, apparently. Some, not, well, I was not sure it was him or somebody else, but yeah, apparently. But uh, surely, I mean, people have done that for years. They've watched training sessions and stuff. But uh, yeah, I think, I think it's quite a unique individual. And I hope I hope Leeds do well. I hope they stay up at least sort of thing, um, as opposed to Fulham, who can happily get very good at the end. And 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 the Bruce and the E Street Band are back. As yeah, well, as yeah. Well. Uh, so the, this was, um, uh, I suppose, we were waiting for a Springsteen album for some time. He'd done his stint on Broadway, so I dare say he was probably writing a few songs. So um, he's back with a new album next month. It's called Letter to You, and uh, this is the first uh, album he's done with the E Street Band in some time. And the big selling point of it is that apparently they're playing the stuff live in the studio. So you, you've heard the first track, mm-hmm. Terry. What was your take on it? I, I, I can't remember the title, but I, I quite liked it. It, it, didn't, it didn't strike me as being particularly live, but uh, I wonder if it's going to be a bit like a... So, so they, they, they'll go straight to record... Oh, they wouldn't just record the live version and put it out. It'll be tweaked, I'm sure, but um, it'll be interesting to see if that's the case. I mean, they don't, they don't get a credit on the, on the sleeve. No. I noticed there was no, like... Um, but maybe they're not on every song. Maybe that's how it works. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward. I do like a bit of Bruce Springsteen. I'm quite quite pleased. I was looking at some some pictures of the last gig I went to with Bruce, and 
it happened and thinking that's not going to happen again anytime soon. Uh, indeed, indeed. Uh, I don't see it at all. So, which brings us on to our, our space adventure, boldly to go with where no man has been before. Yes, yes. Uh, we, we uh, this week have been uh, chatting to Giuseppe Mandorlo from the European Space Agency. Uh, Giuseppe's got a, a, a pet satellite um, that he looks after, but uh, he took some time out to speak to us about. Uh, the Vega rocket launch, uh, which took off uh, about 10 days ago. And uh, I've got a personal interest in this. So um, here's our chat with Giuseppe. Well, we're delighted uh, to be joined today by Giuseppe Mandorlo from the European Space Agency. Um, Welcome, Giuseppe. Hi, uh, Michael. Uh, You are the... System Engineering and Operations Manager for the Copernicus Sentinel-2 project, but you're here today to talk to us about uh, another ESA project, which is the Vega Small Spacecraft Mission Service rocket launch, which uh, happened last week. Yes, yeah, that's, uh, that's right. And in particular, obviously, the, um, the, uh, the, the satellite that uh, we're most interested in is the Hyperscout 2. Uh, oh, yes. Launched, uh, as one of, the, one of the satellites, yes. Yeah. One of many. One of many. One of many, indeed. <laughs> so was it a total of 41 satellites that you, you launched last week, Giuseppe? Uh, I, was, I believe it was 53. I mean, I was trying to tot up the number. What we have is a, a CubeSat carrier, so that class is as one... Uh, one so that uh, that should make everything uh, come to 43 if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah, okay, okay. So, we'll, we'll get on to uh, that a little bit uh, later on, but uh, before we do, um, myself and, and uh, Terry are of an age where we, we remember the um, uh, NASA Apollo um, moon program, and I was just wondering what your earliest memory of space and space exploration might have been. Yeah, that's a, it's an excellent question. I, I I was born in '72, so I unfortunately missed uh, missed in memory of the the Apollo launches. So I I was born in a period where there were uh, of American launches at least. Uh, so my first memory was really of uh, the first shuttle launch, uh, and I really remember sitting around the TV uh, watching watching that launch. Uh, yeah, I mean it was it was amazing because uh, uh, up until then. I, the only exposure I had to space was in science fiction films. So to really see something <laughs> going into space was, yeah, mind-blowing for me as a child. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about how you came to work for ESA? Well, um, yeah, I, I've always had an interest in space. And uh, it was um, even time at university. I, I went to a place called the University of Surrey in Guildford. They were the only university that had uh, built and launched satellites. And so, uh, if you like, they're the forerunner of uh, the satellite that we're seeing launched now, uh, this concept of small satellites. And um, in my time as a student, my final year project was on uh, one of the satellites, doing radiation testing of some of the components. And uh, from there, uh, I got my first uh, in uh, the Ministry of Defence in the UK. working on uh, various projects there and uh, yeah after many years i moved finally to isa and i've been isa now i think it's for 18 years now so it's uh it's been a long time but it's uh i'd say a lot has happened uh, <laughs> but it seems like yesterday I and mean, it was really 
not that long ago. I still see people from my old university, so I'm always in contact with them. Yeah, that was my star, really, at this university. Okay. Yeah. Um, people are you know familiar with the sort of the Ariane rockets, uh, Giuseppe, and but tell me why? I get I'm sure the answer is very obvious. Why is it French Guiana and not Europe? Um, well, there's a, there's a couple of reasons, actually. I mean, one, uh, the main reason uh, why French Guyana is a good location to launch is uh, mainly because it's close to the equator. Right. So it's only five degrees uh, latitude from the equator. And uh, okay. what that gives you is um, a benefit when you're launching satellites into geostationary orbit. So in geostationary, if you, you know, basically satellites that we use for satellite communications and satellite TV, um, they sit at geostationary orbit, which is on the same plane as the equator, All right. and uh, out at 36,000 kilometers. And uh, if you already launch from the equator, it means you have to burn less fuel to get to the orbital plane. Ah. So if you launch from a very far northern station, you would have to burn a lot of fuel to change the orbital plane from a high latitude down to zero. So it's fuel. I mean, it's uh, it's also to basically you can get more mass for the same amount of fuel. Okay. Because uh, it was there was the second. So the second reason is um, obviously like uh, before you, the satellite gets into orbit, you have many stage, you have multiple stages to the rocket, including the fairing, uh, and these all get jettisoned as the rocket's uh, taking off and as it's uh, going through uh, going through the launch. Now, these what goes up must come down. So these basically fall down somewhere. And uh, by launching from French Guiana, we launched uh, eastwards. So any, any bits, let's say, will fall into the Atlantic Ocean. If you're not able to launch over ocean, then you have to think about uh, what, where can your bits of rocket land? And I, I read, uh, I think it was yesterday, that a Chinese launch, with a successful launch, the rocket was fine. Satellite was perfectly put into orbit, but then the booster landed on someone's house and destroyed their house. So, I mean, <laughs> it can happen if you're launching over land, that bits will land on populated areas. So, okay. we obviously don't want to have that happen. So, that's basically those two reasons. Okay, well, that's good, that's good to know. So, but the, the, Vega, the Vega rocket itself, I mean, it's pretty tiny. I mean, it's three meters diameter, but 30 meters, 100 feet tall. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, we're used to sort of seeing, uh, or we have an expectation that rockets get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think if you watch SpaceX and their developments, indeed, their rockets are getting bigger and bigger. Uh, But Vega is really designed to service a part of the market, uh, uh, which is mainly populated by Earth observers. Okay, anything launching in Earth orbit. And it's, uh, it's, if you look at the mass that it can launch, it's around, uh, I think it's uh, 1,500 kilos, 1,500 to 1,600 kilos, which is more or less the mass of the satellite, the Earth observation satellites, at least, that ESA launches. So our, uh, let's say, operational satellites like Sentinel-2. Oh, okay. So uh, it's really designed to service that part of the market. If you want geostationary, then you go to a bigger rocket. Okay. Like Okay. Yeah, I've been to the Johnson Space Center where you see obviously the Saturn V rockets. You can see it's a fairly massive size of scale sort of thing. So yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's the old yeah. sort of stuff. So there's the small spacecraft mission service is a rideshare service, which sounds to be like some sort of Uber in space. But but how how does that work then? Yeah, so I mean, uh, it's been, you know, like a long time, uh, a real an evolution. It seems like it's happened sort of yesterday that we we started to launch these very small satellites. But really, I mean, it's from probably the late 90s 
what uh, Ariane, Ariane actually started, I think, or, or it was also the Americans also found that payload space on uh, the, like the ring adapter where the main satellite was sitting, you still had space to put some small satellites. So then it started like this, that uh, uh, the, the, the small satellites would basically piggyback, get a free ride with the main satellite. But there's, uh, there's restrictions if you, if you use, use that approach. So what the small, small spacecraft mission service is trying to do is, is basically service these, this part of the market, which is the small satellites, which is growing at a really fast rate. So it's really an important market for us. And uh, as we will get on, I mean, it's really, if you like, the cutting edge is really where we prove the technologies is really with some of these CubeSats and uh, the small sats that we have. So... The SS SSMS is really designed to support these light satellites sort of from one kilos to 500 kilos. And uh, the aim is really to, to transport all of these payloads in one go. And uh, um, by doing that, what, what it means is, is that you can uh, obviously reduce costs. Uh, but also um, a key feature is that it allows a very late uh, embarkation of a satellite. So you can really, very close to launch, uh, reconfigure the uh, the SSMS to take on board other satellites. And this flexibility is, I think, goes hand in hand with the the small the the small sat, the new space market, which is very fast moving, very dynamic, and indeed uh, need need for sort of a okay. launches. So. Uh, yeah, it's really servicing this part of the market, the small, yeah, the small satellites. Because my, my understanding uh, is basically the system uses some sort of, you've got 40 plus satellites in a fairly small rocket, some sort of spring system that kind of releases them all into orbit. I mean, how long does that take to, to launch them in space? I mean, uh, it really depends on uh, the uh, uh, which orbits the satellites can go want to go into. So, I mean, what Vega, the Vega upper stage can do is it can actually manoeuvre uh, itself, so we can take the SSMS, uh, deploy, let's say, fifty percent of the satellites, move to another orbit, deploy another twenty-five percent of the satellites, move to another orbit, and deploy the remainder. So it's very much dependent on uh, on number of satellites, of course, but also where you want to inject them. But uh, I mean, typically the whole process is, is is several hours. I mean, it's it's really measured in uh, in the sort of eight nine hours. It's limited, of course, by the amount of time uh, you have uh, power to the the upper stage because the upper stage is battery powered. Uh, but uh, let's say we're looking to increase the flexibility of SSMS uh, to to allow it to really, I mean, uh, be as flexible as possible to inject the payloads in as many orbits okay. as possible. So. Uh, I would say it's variable. This is the beauty of it. It's very, very. I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot of satellites, a lot of junk flying around up there. How how do you decide, like the orbit position for for a new satellite? Because it's obviously getting quite quite busy up there, I would imagine. Yeah. Yes. I mean, now we really have to. We have a concept of uh, like uh, air traffic control for space. Uh, we don't have controllers telling us where we need to fly, but what we do have is. Uh, Collision warnings. So for my satellite, Sentinel-2, uh, we regularly receive at least two or three times a year a collision warning. So that's a warning from uh, NORAD, uh, together with our uh, department here in ESA, our uh, Space Situational Awareness Department, that they they look at all of the orbits of all of the uh, objects uh, in space today, everything that can be tracked, because obviously below a certain size, we can't track it. And if they see that there is a, a conjunction, 
which means you're going to smash into <laughs> another object or another object smash into you. Then we get a collision avoidance uh, warning and we have to do a collision avoidance maneuver. So that means we have to uh, move the satellite um, up or down one kilometer, fly past the, uh, the chaser, as we call it, so the object that you may crash into, and then bring it back to its normal orbit. And I mean, this is happening more and more, but uh, I think uh, for, for you, the question was, how do you decide uh, the orbital position for a satellite? And that's very much right. given by and the how, mission. How, how do you change, so, how do you change uh, position yeah. then? How does that happen? Um, actually, it's for these small sets, they generally right. don't change position. So pretty much where yeah. you put them is, is where they stay. And that's just because they're limited in terms of fuel. I mean, they have, in many cases, they don't have fuel. So they don't have a propulsion right. system to be able to move. Um, but any other satellites, I mean, uh, let's say uh, classical satellites, uh, they have a propulsion system. And uh, usually we keep the same orbit. So we don't jump orbit to orbit. But what we do do is we have to correct the orbit on a regular basis. And this is because the Earth is not perfectly round. And so as you orbit the Earth, you do get uh, slight, uh, slight uh, errors, let's say. And in addition, I mean, you have uh, pr solar pressure, so pressure from the sun, uh, the solar wind and uh, solar pressure, so just from the sunlight, which then also slightly changes your position. So we're always having to do these uh, orbital corrections. But Usually the orbit position is fixed from the start because it's very closely linked to your mission. So Earth observation generally is at uh, uh, low Earth orbit uh, because we want to be closer to the Earth because we're taking images. Geostationary, so communications, tends to be out of geostationary orbit because you want okay. to cover and the how, whole world. How, how high is and the low Earth so, orbit in sort of yeah. meters or kilometers? How, how high is that? Yeah, it's typically around sort of uh, 500, uh, 500 okay. kilometers up to... Yeah, maybe maybe 1,100, 1,200 kilometers for certain applications. But usually we're in the band of about 500 kilometers for, okay. for imaging cool. missions. All right, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, as you know, Giuseppe, I have a little bit of skin in last week's launch, as amongst uh, your payload is the FISAT Earth Observation Satellite, which uses a Movidius um, Myriad 2 chip, which was designed by my big brother David and his team. Yes, yes. Um, this satellite is the first one that you've um, uh, used with onboard artificial intelligence. Can you tell us a little bit about the um, the nature of that satellite and what it's going to do? Yeah, uh, so um, Hyperscout 2, I mean, was, um, or FISAT is, uh, uh, is our name for it, at least. It's, uh, FISAT is a second generation of a, what's called a hyperspectral imager. So um, it looks, uh, it takes a, an image, but in many different spectral bands. So hundreds of spectral bands. So from infrared all the way up to UV. And each band has some, uh, let's say, can be used for certain uh, applications. And if you combine bands, you can extract uh, uh, more interesting information uh, uh, depending on what your application is. Now, what Meridius, uh, the Myriad 2 chip gives us um, it gives us the ability to actually filter on board the, uh, the data. So it, it, Sentinel-2 is also an imaging satellite, but we don't have any onboard uh, artificial intelligence. What we do is we image everything and we downlink everything. Uh, the trouble with that is it's a huge amount of data. It's an immense amount of data. And uh, what Myriad-2 gives us with uh, FISA is uh, that... Um, 
Beta doesn't have, uh, let's say, the resources to be able to downlink all of the data that it captures. So uh, I, I remember Greg saying that, that data is worthless, but what we really need is the information. So what FISAS yeah. and the AI board, uh, the Myriad 2 uh, chip gives us, is that it actually filters the data to only send down the information that you want. And the first application that we want to fly with Myriad 2 is a very simple one. It's just going to look for cloudy images. So if you have an image which is fully cloud, uh, probably unless you're interested in clouds, it's not very interesting. You want to look for so uh, those sorts of images, if we could discard them and not downlink them, it saves us uh, the resources on board plus the downlink time and everything else. Now, if I take the Sentinel-2 images where we have captured everything and archived everything, 40% of the images is cloud. So straight away, just by filtering out cloudy images, you get a 40% reduction in the amount of data volume that you need to send down to ground. Next uh, uh, layer uh, that we'll look at is, um, so we, we obviously that's just the first application that to fly just to test it. But then you can imagine that you can program the chip to look for other uh, features. So instead of looking for clouds, maybe you would like to look for ships. And maybe, uh, you know, no, I think we'll get on to the subject of, uh, uh, but the, the, the applications, uh, um, but by putting the intelligence on board, so really at the edge, uh, as we say, by putting the, this intelligence very close to the, the, the detector, what it allows you to do is just extract the information. And so one day maybe we can envisage that actually what you downlink is probably not so much image and maybe just the answer to your question. So your question may be, show me where all the oil tankers are. What the satellite will do is uh, take the images, find the location of the uh, oil tankers and actually downlink you the information, uh, just the information. This is, uh, let's say, farther into the future. But today we see, I mean, huge uh, benefits in terms of uh, uh, efficiency on how we use a satellite, but also in, in again, extracting the information from, from this huge data set. Yeah. So, yeah. And you've got really, um, you know, a couple of different areas where uh, this type of information is going to be useful. So for government agencies, you can, um, you know, look like, you know, floods and uh, what areas have been affected. You can you know, detect changes in forestation or desert, uh, desertification and fires and things like that, I suppose you can check. And then you've obviously got the more commercial aspects yeah. to it and i know you've launched another couple of satellites uh at uh, this time giuseppe can you tell us a wee bit more about those and maybe some of the the different um uh, applications that flock for v and lemur 2 um present yeah yeah so i mean uh, for sure let's say where i sit is somewhere in between the two worlds i have uh, my, my main project so the the project that is uh, my project is sentinel 2 and this is uh you would call it sort of a classical operational satellite, high performance, high availability, high reliability. Uh, so really, uh, and the price tag to go with it at least. So uh, not a cheap uh, satellite. But uh, there, I mean, uh, uh, is, if you like, the real, uh, as you put it, like a sort of governmental applications. And then at the other end of the scale, we have really now the commercial world, which is very, is very, very dynamic and, and is really coming up fast in terms of uh, capability. So 
the Flock uh, 4B satellites, uh, they're, they're made for a company called, uh, they're, they belong to a company called Planet Labs. And I believe now Planet Lab run, has the biggest uh, constellation of spacecraft in the world. So I think it's about 140 satellites or something like that. And um, they launched 14 CubeSats, as they call, so 14 small satellites with this launch. And uh, Planet Lab is really, yeah, it's really, uh, I would say, the other end of the scale and probably would be one of the ideal users for, for uh, the Miriam chip because it's, it's, again, a small satellite with limited resources. And what they're doing is, is they're really looking to capture the information. So this is, this is really, if you like, uh, uh, we can see a little bit into the future by looking at what these commercial satellites are doing and, uh, and how they're really, I mean, shaking up uh, the Earth observation world. Um, no, how other, much is a yeah, Sentinel-2 satellite going for these days, then? <laughs> <laughs> that's a, that's a, that's a, a very personal question, no. I mean, it's a, a, the first the first, um, first generation, because we're now on to building the C and D. So the A and B satellite Ooh, was approximately 200 goodness. million uh, satellites. So, it's, uh, yeah, but if you look at, I mean, it, of course, it's a big price tag, but then you have to think on the applications, how much money or uh, do we save how much uh, how many applications do we bring to the economy mm. and basically uh, serve uh, to, to either make things more efficient i mean we touched on some of the applications but the uh, agricultural applications for sentinel 2 is really a key one yeah and i mean there if you can imagine um i've seen studies where or not just studies case studies where they've really taken a farm a farm and made use of satellite data and you really see you know, like a reduction in pesticide use by 20%, water reduction usage by 20%, and, uh, fertilizer reduced, and things like this. So you really see that you get uh, many, many uh, efficient gains on, if you can multiply that across all the farming across Europe, it's much, much, much more than... Uh, than oh, sure, uh, that's yeah, million. Yeah, understand. Um, and uh, and if we talk about flooding... Yeah, sorry. Sorry, and it's not just farming, though, is it? Because I mean, um, market analysts, for example, could look at this information in terms of you know they could uh, have real time uh, data on um, uh, what a harvest is like for something like coffee, for example, and then you know they can sell that information on. So it, it's it's you're almost creating a, a search engine, a visual search engine for people to use and obviously pay for the the the, the pleasure of using it. I suppose, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, the data from Sentinels are free. I mean, it's free data. You, anybody can, you can uh, make an account for yourself and download the data. And the tools, I mean, are freely available. So you can start processing and, and looking at images. But indeed, uh, you know, when you process the data, it's what, what is the information you're trying to extract? So for the agriculture, it's exactly right. I mean, we basically, with the, with the Sentinels, every uh, Sentinel 2 is take it, it takes an image of the Earth every five days. The entire Earth is imaged every five days. So there you can really see the change in everything. You're looking at a crop. You can monitor how the crop is growing. You can also make predictions if, if the crops are suffering from weather events. You can also make an estimate of uh, do you need to, to think about food aid for certain countries because you see that their agricultural sector has been hit by a weather events. So it's... Uh, Commercial plus, uh, you know, governmental. Um, I mean, I'm not, if I take, um, uh, we, we, I gave the example a moment ago of uh, using the AI chip to say, look for oil tankers. I mean, this is a real application that's been used. Uh, and 
if you know where all the oil tankers are, you know basically where the oil is being shipped to, and and you can also see uh, if the oil is being stored on the tankers. So it's it's the sort of information that if you know it, and you're in oil, I mean, you could uh, uh, it makes a difference to the price of oil, maybe you know one or two dollars. Mm-hmm. But if you're a trader, this is uh, a huge trader. So the applications, I must say, I come from the satellite side, but I love looking at all the different applications. But the number of applications amazes and never ceases to amaze me on the number of applications that come out uh, and also the diversity. Mm. I mean, just how clever, how clever some of the applications are. Just by, just by taking two or three bits of information, your image data, you can extract a whole new data set new set of information so it's really limitless really it's uh, limited by the human mind i think that's the only thing that yeah and it, it comes in a very small package uh, giuseppe i mean that the, the hyperscout too it's yeah. kind of hard to get your head around just how small this thing is and uh, obviously also how little power it uses up i mean like modern uh, chips that have been designed for the requirements of uh, you, you know mobile phones and, and the like uh, they uh, need to, you know, use very little power. But power is something that you can't really um, um, waste in space. I guess is that right? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, uh, what I would say actually is that all of our resources are limited, and it's limited because, uh, well, for the cube, the the small sats is limited because indeed they have to fit into a small space. Even the larger satellites still have to be designed to a budget. So there's a limited mass, a limited power. Uh, and a limited uh, volume. And uh, this obviously uh, uh, then limits what you can do. Um, indeed, the, the Myriad 2, uh, the beauty of the chip is that it's, it's really for low power applications, and that's exactly what we wanted. So when we, I mean, the, the, the sequence of events which came basically Myriad 2 flying on a FISAT over the space of one, one or two days and just a, a series of discussions between... Uh, uh, my colleague, General Furano, I think uh, David knows very well. And he'd, he'd actually been working with your brother on, uh, on uh, let's say, general applications. And just talking to each other, we, we, we sort of uh, uh, realized, okay, this, this chip, this board would be perfect for, for some of these small set applications. And then we made contact with our colleague, uh, Max Pastena. And then, uh, let's say, within one or two meetings, it was, uh, it was already a go. But the, the, the limit was always uh, resources we have. And I think in, in general, we try to always look for the, the lowest power, uh, the lowest mass, and the lowest volume. Um, if you have high power, yeah, there's another problem. If you have high power, you heat. Uh, and then you have another problem with your satellite, and that's to get rid of the heat. So in actual fact, it's uh, two sides of the same coin. So um, if you have a higher power consumption, you're also going to need bigger radiators to radiate that heat out. If you are not able to radiate that heat, you will not be able to operate. Uh, so you have to make this balance between all of your limited resources. But I mean, this is uh, the Mir- the Mavidius chip or the Myriad 2 is um, really fits into this category of uh, very low power devices, which is exactly what we need for small sats. Yeah. And uh, the early space missions such as uh, Apollo obviously speeded up the, you know, miniaturization and electronics and, yeah. and uh, 
precipitate big improvements in computer technology. But today, you can go and buy a lot of this stuff off the shelf. I mean, for example, you could buy a Hyperscout One module and uh, have it delivered in a matter of months. And, uh, you know, chips like the uh, Myriad can be programmed to lots of different things, even while it's in orbit. So has this change kind of speed up the process of getting things done for ESA from, you know, the design stage through to implementation? Uh, has, uh, has, have things improved in recent years? Yeah, I think with the with the small side, the new space world, I mean, for sure, it's... Uh, uh, I think the key word there is is uh, the speed. You know, it's really not to uh, spend a long time uh, uh, analysing to see that it would work on all different cases, but to accept a certain level of risk. And when you fly commercial chips, by definition, I mean, you're accepting a, a smaller, uh, a slight increase in your risk. You can get around that risk by using clever designs. So if you design your, your system in a clever way, you can take a chip which may not be reliable in space, but you can make it look reliable at the level of the satellite. So, you know, just to give you an example, if you have a one chip that maybe, uh, I should add actually, uh, all the electronic devices suffer from uh, radiation effects in space. So they basically uh, get glitches due to uh, particles hitting uh, different bits of the chip, and uh, this can cause outages. But if you can imagine you have uh, three of these chips all running in parallel at the same time. If one of them goes down, you still have the other two chips. So you <laughs> do majority voting. Right. And uh, this allows you to basically take something. So basically allows you to take lemons and make lemonade. So you can take something which is not reliable and make it reliable. Now, I should add that uh, we're not saying that, uh, I mean, Myriad 2 is uh, we, it's the first time we fly in space. So we're very interested to see uh, how it works. Uh, but we have done some radio, quite a bit of radiation testing, actually, with the chip, and we think uh, it should behave quite well. Okay. But uh, I mean, I'm interested because these are becoming yeah. smaller and cheaper and faster. Um, and, and obviously, is there an opportunity here yeah. for the less salubrious, less noble activities for satellite launching? <laughs> you know, the, I'm thinking of the traditional Bond villain here. And um, how, how does that, how does that get controlled? Yeah, yeah. I mean. It, it, Yes. Yeah, I mean, well, for a start, we know, I mean, it's very right. difficult okay. to launch anything without someone noticing. So, uh, I mean, uh, there we, we uh, have uh, we have tracking, so we know what's going into orbit. But it, indeed, the things are super cheap. I mean, uh, I think we mentioned a figure of uh, 200 million for a, for a typical sort of uh, uh, um, classical operational satellite. Um, a, you know, a, a Mavidius, uh, like a CubeSat type um, satellite, you know, you could uh, you could envisage sort of in the tens of thousands of euros. So it's really okay. a massive change uh, in terms of price. Of course, a small package does mean uh, you lose some capabilities or many capabilities. But uh, you can also make up for that by having more satellites in orbit. So, you know, there's this trade-off uh, of uh, um, when it comes to Earth observation. It's really how often can you take an image of an interesting part of the Earth versus uh, how expensive is your satellite versus okay. how many satellites you have in orbit. As I say, the flock, uh, the Planet Labs, you know, these are smaller satellites around the same size as uh, FeedSat, but they have many of them. So actually, the nice thing about Planet is that they're able to get you an image of, uh, so if you request an image of a certain point on the Earth, they can get you that okay. image relatively quickly. 
So it's it's uh, the, the cheapness of the missions means you can fly more satellites, which gives you benefits in other areas in terms of what's called revisit time, or the time it takes to revisit the same point on Earth. Uh, but this opens up a whole load of other applications. So, I mean, we, we work together in the space uh, environment. We're not competing necessarily with okay. the small sets, but I think we're more complementary. Okay. And you're going to start this using the, the Vega Sea Launcher yeah. soon as well, aren't you? So what's the kind of applications for that, then, you think? Or? Yeah, so Vega C, I mean, we will launch uh, Sentinel 2C and D when, when it's time. We will launch with Vega C. So Vega right. C is a more capable version of Vega. It has a larger first stage, so it's able to launch a bigger mass into orbit. Um, it can actually do something which is uh, more interesting, which is actually oh. satellites at the same time. So it can have a main, a main satellite and a smaller, but still relatively large secondary satellite. Um, but if we use the SSMS, of course, the extra mass means that we can launch even more satellites, or we can even use uh, um, the capability to put them into different orbits, or we can launch the higher altitudes as well. So in the end, it's uh, the bigger rocket gives you more launch mass, and more launch okay. mass, I mean, can be used in different ways. You can trade off okay. fuel. Versus, and see, uh, see even our, our friends, like the Russians and the Chinese launch satellites, do they let you know, or, or is it just kind of, you obviously see them go up, I guess, but... Is, is, there, is, there, is there much cooperation yeah, there? Yeah, indeed, really? I mean, yes. Yes, I mean, they, it, indeed, they, they, uh, they do inform us. I mean, uh, the, especially the, the nuclear powers of the world, so Russia and the US and China, I mean, especially countries which are monitoring, um, indeed, you need to inform them well beforehand that you're doing a launch because those yeah. launches could be misinterpreted for, a mis okay. for a, uh, an ICBM launch. Yeah. And that, that's actually happened before, uh, that there was a, I think it was a launch from, uh, uh, it was a sounding rocket, so not going into orbit, just uh, up to a few hundred kilometers altitude and back down again. But uh, the Russians were informed, I think this was around the time of Boris Yeltsin, uh, they were informed that the launch was going on, but somehow the message wasn't passed. And uh, actually they saw this rocket going up and then they, Let's say they started to trigger their military <laughs> process. But, uh, I mean, the world was a safe place. You know, let's say, uh, obviously, you know, logically, there was no tensions in the world at that time. So it, it was extremely unlikely to do an ICBM <laughs> launch. But indeed, they did track, wait for the rocket to roll in the, the opposite direction oh, to Russia. To and then everybody relaxed. But uh, this, I think, gives you the, the example that it's, it is very important that we communicate uh, with it, with each other about what we're doing in space and we're letting each other know what we're putting into space and eventually that we have to bring, uh, especially the low Earth orbiters, we have to bring them down. So we now have requirements which say within 25 years, so for Sentinel-2, within 25 okay. years, the satellite should uh, burn up, should come out and burn up. So, uh, you know, we, we're not going to pollute the environment to the point of no return, we have already taken action and already okay. the satellites oh, are designed with these requirements. So we are a good custodians oh, of, that's the, good to hear. Uh, of the space One, one, one question I, I meant to ask hope. you earlier, actually. I'm obviously sitting today in Aberdeen and there was great excitement here. I think it was last year where there was discussions of a Scottish spaceport. Um, and I'm kind of wondering what benefit that would bring yeah, to, yeah. to space having it in the north of Scotland as opposed to French Guiana, for example, or... Well, yeah. So as we said, the 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 um, the launches of 
to geostationary. I mean, ideally, a launch from the equator. And actually, for polar launches, so these are launches which go um, north to south. You're launching over the poles. And this is the typical Earth observation. Then actually, a northern station, a northern launch uh, base is, is probably uh, an interesting one to have as well. So if you look, I mean, the okay. Russians launch from uh, Plzeň, which is in the Arctic Circle. Um, and I think of other launch okay. sites right. uh, that they have. So uh, actually, North. that's yeah. absolutely been a fascinating. Um, I mean, yeah, I just I, I've been a fan of kind of all that sort of stuff for years. I'm sure Michael has as well. And but I kind of imagine all you guys, you know, sitting around that's on true. a Friday night watching a favorite space movie. I mean, do you, do you have one or? <laughs> yeah i mean i have I have a few you know like when you ask the question you know i mean it was it's really difficult to say which one i mean oh come on which got me into space okay. i mean i was five years old when star wars came out okay. so that that for sure like in star wars but if you want my favorite space film oh. at the moment is probably interstellar which might not be everybody's tea but I like it because I like uh, anything where you bend okay. space and time. I like those stories a lot. You know, like anything to do with uh, Einstein's theory of relativity. I mean, this but, is all great uh, stuff. Would, would, you, would, you, would you so, find yourself uh, that kind of watching that, pointing out the flaws in their science, maybe, and stuff like that? Or <laughs> yeah, no, I've learned. I've learned to keep my mouth shut now because. My- Slap me a few times. Well, my sons actually, they just say, No, daddy, please don't say, you know, don't say that, 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 that can never happen. That would have burnt up, or, or you know, he would have been dead uh, minutes ago, you know, by now. So they, they hate me. So I've learned not to keep my mouth shut. But yeah, yeah, I like the The Martian. I don't know if you've yeah. ever seen The Martian. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so that, that one, the head of uh, the project called Mars Express. I mean, he was our, uh, ended up our very senior manager here in ESA, so Rudy Schmidt. Rudy, uh, Rudy uh, actually um, provided consultancy to the Martian. So he really, you know, basically uh, they came to him and asked questions to try and get it as realistic as possible. So if you want from realism point yeah. of view, the Martian is my favourite. From just, you know, my, mind-bending yeah, the, space the, the Martian, and time. The Martian did summer. feel pretty real, actually. Yeah. I mean, it was a, not real, but obviously it was a movie, but just it seemed like it could happen the way it did sort of thing. Um yeah, at, at the weekend yeah, I just yes. watched, uh, rewatched yeah. uh, a very old film, Flash Gordon, which is the other end of the spe- the other end of the spectrum. I think it's too. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's also a great so movie, by the way. It's so still a great movie. <laughs> anyway, so, okay. <laughs> Anything else for you, Michael? Uh, well, not really. I'd probably go for a different movie. Maybe it's a space movie, but maybe it's more a, a kind of. Um, internal journey isn't it uh solaris i mean it's been uh, remade recently and there was a george clooney remake okay. but i'd go for the original uh, uh, Turk that's, that's, a good, that, that, that that's a good choice, choice. so anyway so well like, once again choice, thank yeah. you for your time this afternoon it's been it's been fantastic i really enjoyed our chat actually so we we better let giuseppe <laughs> boldly go terry <laughs> Oh, thank you thank you no that, guys it's been a pleasure pleasure to talk to you and uh I think uh, we could spend ages going over old stories of uh, you know, interesting things that have happened uh, during launches and whatnot. But there's uh, probably some I'm not allowed to tell you. But That's there, great. There All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Bye. Thanks, Giuseppe. I have to say that was very entertaining. It was a good uh, popular science thread, I think. It, it was. And I, and I would just, just like to point out, because of the recording, um, 
there's a few bits where it sounds like I we were talking over him, but it's not. It's just a slight delay in the recording. Um, Giuseppe was in in, in uh, Holland, and I think it was just the, the day of the connection of the internet. But yeah, I very I love that interview actually, uh, very entertaining, and I've I've been researching it and reading about it since, and it's it's fascinating actually. So it really is. So, um, but we didn't get into with him was was space themed songs. Yeah, not hugely. So uh, you've been putting a wee bit of thought in this, Terry. Well, you want to get. Well, I've got a few here. I mean, some of these are pretty cliched. So we've got the police walking on the moon, mm-hmm. funny enough. Uh, Babylon Zoo, Spaceman. Um, obviously, the race for space or the race for a two-minute space from public service broadcasting. Um, Ash got from Mars, the final countdown. And my favourite one was Devo and Space Junk. Oh, God, that's good, yeah. Uh... Which... <laughs> <laughs> it's a story about a bit of Space Junk who hits his girlfriend and kills her. <laughs> <laughs> That's a heartwarming story, isn't it? Yeah, it's lovely. And what was your um, right, well, actually? There was very little overlap. The only one that, that I chose that, that you'd mentioned there was uh, public service broadcasting's Go, which like brings back all the thrill of a rocket launch, really, doesn't it? It does. And um, Bowie Space Oddity had to have that there, and like for proper oh, yeah. kind of space travel, one uh, Russia's Cygnus X One, one oh, obviously. Indeed. And um, Space Lab by uh, Kraftwerk, uh, Sheila and B Devotion Spacer. You remember that? The uh, oh, yeah, chic, uh, yeah. written and uh, produced and arranged track. Black Hole Sun. Oh, good. Intergalactic by the Beastie Boys. And uh, my, my um, slightly oddball one is probably Planet Claire by the B 52s. Oh, that's a good song, I say. Yeah, I'd start with that one, I say. So oh, that's good. It's funny, I, I googled space songs, and of course, the first one that came up every time was Space Oddity. But uh, so it's a good There's song. a reason why it's there. But anyway, uh, never mind the good ones. What about a bad one? Have you got any turkeys, Terry? Um, actually, well, I would say for me, uh, it was probably Europe, the final countdown, <laughs> which was a so- just a song I never, I never liked. I mean, the hair, everything. I think did that, did Europe do something else afterwards? Or yeah, they're still going. Oh, yeah, really? they they they, they oh, have an album out about every eighteen months, uh, and you know oh, until God. recently they have been touring. So yeah, they're, they're still very much going. Joey Tempest, I don't know if the other okay. band members are the same, but he he's definitely still there. Oh God! So I think that would be my certainly Turkey. Of oh no, I I could beat that. Uh, Christoberg's a spaceman came traveling. Oh. Of course, yes. <laughs> Which is, it's actually really a Christmas song, isn't it? Of the most turgid, awful kind. But somehow he seems to interweave some kind of vague science fiction link in with it. Chris, you shouldn't have bothered. Now, for fear of, of, of gathering up the realms of Chris the Berg fans, is he alive or dead? He's very much alive. Right. He would strike me as a, a Jim Core sympathizer, possibly. No, so. no, don't be, don't uh, be, don't be <laughs> slinging muck around like that. Do you know what? I'd say there probably is some kind of link between Christopher and Alan Partridge. Uh, there's got to be. So Alan Partridge, who yeah, I think you yeah, love him or hate him, he's done various TV shows, to the movies, and the last week or so he's released. Um, it's on Audible, so if you have an Amazon account, I think you can you can probably get it for free. Um, it's called uh, From the Oast House, and I can't I can't say it in his accent. It's like sounding completely from the Oast House. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty pretty much it. So, so what he's doing? He's doing a podcast. Alan's doing a podcast. Um, the whole thing is about seven hours long. Um, he he runs through you know little sort of twenty minute episodes of his daily life as a inside you know trying to go to the he's trying to go to the international boat show in Southampton, which actually was this weekend by the way, 
and his uh, assistant has a heart attack, uh, which he you know briefly t- t- speaks to her about, and then has to break into her house to get his uh, accreditation for his ticket <laughs> and stuff. Um, he talks about the Irish problem, which I think he thinks will be solved by cancelling the ferries between Ireland and England. <laughs> so it's 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 very much part range. There's not he's got a few characters that come in and out, but if you get a chance and you you can see it on, I'm sure people a lot of people have Amazon accounts, but I have a listen. It's very funny. My wife hates it because she doesn't like Alan Partridge, but uh, it is excellent. Actually, uh, so. And speaking of very funny, uh, very funny, and uh, we we don't often get uh, hatchet jobs anymore in the press, do we? But um, we spoke about no. uh, Idols Abbey Road set in the last uh, podcast, and um, the quietest seem to have taken a leaf out of our book. I mean, we we didn't go quite as far. But uh, their review of Ultra Mono, uh, the new Idols album, is a joy to behold. Well, yeah, I mean, it's 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 not positive, is it? I mean, um, look, here, three albums in and the hype has died down. The ideas are drying up. I mean, he's got slag off Jimmy Cullum in it. Um, it's, it's, it's just not a positive. It's not good at all, actually. So, I mean, it makes me kind of interested to listen to it now. <laughs> <laughs> which maybe, which maybe is the point. Maybe that maybe we're, maybe we're all being played here, sort of thing. So, but uh, I think I think they are basically calling him out, thinking this is a third album, and really the hype has died out, and uh, that's that they should really just leave it be. I think. Yeah, the comment about uh, Colum is quite good fun. I mean, Jamie, you know, I'm not a fan. I, I like his uh, his radio show, but uh, his music is a bit too tame for me. But uh, Idols by numbers, rock plod has none of the sensitive jazz swing of the Jesus Lizard, nor <laughs> nor can it match the unhinged ferocity of Cullen at his most feral. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine the idea of a feral Jimmy Cullen, actually. So. Yeah, and you know, I but, think uh, the the J. R. Moores is the guy who wrote this. He, he kind of he gets it all in one line for me about Idols. He talks about. Uh, um, uh, Joe Talbot, um, you know that that his vocals are an um, you know alternate between shouty talking and talky shouting, and, and that is it for me. You know, there's a, a bit of a lack of tunes going on. I think so. And uh, interesting enough, when I started, I was just googling the idols over the weekend and different things, and I found some a lot of people having a go. And I, I think there definitely is a. I'm not saying these would be subdued, but you know, radio, some radio stations on the BBC would love the idols and they would have everything on all the time, sort of thing. But there's a guy here who was talking about uh, their last album, Joy is an Act of Resistance, and how that album was driven by their alcoholism and problems with drug addiction, etc. And they said they couldn't believe that literally a month after releasing the album, the, the band released a craft order. <laughs> Which they said didn't really kind of tie in the two sort of things, so I think they were they were they were insinuating certainly that the band were a bit fake, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, but uh, they, they do seem to be the darling of various of the media at, at the time. But maybe this will be a, a bridge too far, so to speak. So, but uh, I think this is like twentieth twentieth September the end. Of, end of yeah, month, yeah, it's coming or? soon. Twenty fifth, I think maybe. Twenty fifth, so it'll be interesting. To, I, I will like to have a listen to it actually. Um, I actually just I know we're not I have nothing else to review, but I actually just listened to the Doves album this week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I wasn't. I quite liked the Doves, but they haven't been around for a while, and uh, I thought it was pretty decent stuff. So that was good. And I'd like to give a shout out to another band who I find, and I, I don't like to recommend music to people because I always find that people don't you know people don't like it. But I found this band called the Fake Flirtations, who are a band from Belfast, and I found them on the kind of Northern Ireland version of the introducing thing with the BBC, okay. and and they've got an EP out, and it's great. 
uh, everybody I've said to listen to this, they've loved it. So uh, it's well worth a listen. They've got four tracks and they've got a single out as well. That's all they've got. And they're actually kind of anonymous from social media. They've got a Facebook account and that's it, I find. Um, but um, yeah, so it should be pretty good. And one quickly one, following on to Cold Years last week, they're doing a gig in Germany next week, which is going ahead. And they're also doing an acoustic gig at the Ramones Museum. Oh, nice. Have you ever been to that? Yeah. Have you ever been to that in Berlin? No, uh, I think it's quite small, isn't it? You, you, you can get a badge and, okay. and a bottle of beer and there's room. Well, there's probably only room for about one person at a time now because of the, the oh. restrictions, but I gathered it was pretty small. I haven't been. Okay. Well, they're doing an acoustic gig there apparently this week at some point, and I'm sure it'll be on social medias and stuff. So, but, uh, so there we go. Great. So I think that about wraps it up, Terry. So um, we're fairly rattling through our um, weekly cast now. Um, uh, we'll be back before too long with more interviews, more reviews, and more nonsense. Um, well, I, gar- I can guarantee the nonsense. That's for sure. <laughs> that'll be good. That'll be good, good fun. So, so we'll see you all again. Till the next time.